In our second episode on queer spaces, we shift the focus slightly onto the physical and political space in which queer bodies exist, where we are confined and limited, but also where we carve out spaces and resist. Whereas the first part on queer space has focused more on consent within interpersonal spaces, this part will explore community spaces and their position in wider social, political and economic structures. It is important to note here that the interpersonal space and the physical, political are by no means separate or separable. As you will hear, they inform and reinforce each other. If consent is ensured on one level, it impacts the safety, comfort and room for consent on the other level. Soas Radio producer Mary spoke to two activists, Oli and Erkan, about what consent means within spaces that are constantly shifting. Queer spaces are remodeled and co-opted into neoliberal frameworks. Spaces are gentrified, taking more and more space from an anti-capitalist, anti-racist queerness and its possibilities to challenge the system as it is. Enjoy this episode, check out the organizations mentioned and as always feel free to leave feedback. Hello, I'm Mary, I'm the producer and project coordinator for Consent Vent and today I'm joined by Oli and Erkan ahead of this evening's event, Let the Record Show, a political history of ACT UP and this is being hosted at SOAS as part of an event series which is four days of coalition politics and queer liberty. Firstly, can you introduce yourselves, your area of work, as well as how you're involved in the event tonight and the project more widely? My name is Arkan Affan. I did my BA here at SOAS in Middle Eastern Studies. I did my master's at UCL in migration and gender. I'm based between Berlin and London, but mainly I'm living in Berlin at the moment. I'm doing a residency funded by the EU on making queer spaces more accessible for minorities. Uh, I did my research in Berlin on accessibility of queer spaces for migrants and also for asylum seekers. And I mean, that was kind of one of the pretenses as to why I wanted to get involved in making queer spaces actually queer and making them actually accessible. Uh, My involvement in this project came from, first of all, my personal friendship with the other the co-organizers, Olympia being one of them, Dan Glass and Jeremy as well. And on top of that, for the fact that in London, we have such a good queer community being built and we have such a good potential for future coalition. And I think that we need to start really projecting that within both a national and an international context. And specifically, I guess my like main involvement in this event has been the panel, which we're doing tomorrow at the Institute of Contemporary Art. We've got Travis Alabanza who's speaking and then Lewis Burton, who is the uh, co-founder of Inferno, which is a queer techno party here in London. We have the Centre for Transnational Development and Collaboration, which are two queer Palestinian women focusing on academia and bridging the gap between academia and identity politics and queerness. And finally, we have Avia Sarah Day, who is one of the co-founders of East End Sisters Uncut, who recently actually organised a conference here at SOAS for Sisters Uncut as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So my name is uh, Olympia Burkillaro. I also did my BA here at SOAS a few years ago now um, in anthropology and politics. And now I'm doing my PhD at the University of Westminster. And that is kind of focused around... Yeah, queer politics and sort of the politics of diversity and especially like what does it mean now that neoliberalism is like incredibly interested in differences and like diversity and gender and sexuality in particular and like whether that kind of politics actually does make a difference and whether it's an effective way of tackling uh, structural inequalities um, and I think maybe not and I guess that ties into my involvement in the project as well um, as well as being sort of friends with uh, obviously you Erkan and uh, (laughs) Dan and the other organizers Um, I guess yeah I think in an era of uh, sort of on the one hand we've got sort of the re-emergence of fascism but also like neoliberalism both of which I I would argue are like quite individualistic types of politics that like uh, are bent on sort of individualizing us as human beings, as consumers, um, as uh, nationalist subjects. Um, There is perhaps more than ever uh, now a need for a type of politics, a coalitional politics um, that kind of 
drives to connect struggles and systems of oppression and um yeah so i think i think we can we have a lot to learn from the history of act up which was just one example of a very successful um form of coalitional politics in the states but also in the uk and worldwide and that's kind of the impetus which drives the series of events which are can described This podcast is centered on providing a wider understanding of consent at SOAS but also in the wider community. How would you define consent and how it applies to queer spaces? Yeah, so I think for me consent is something which should be conceptualized more also about representation and accessibility. I think um we're at a point now where we've been talking about consensual politics for a while and I think the basis of like no means no, yes means yes, like you know, don't touch someone without asking. These things should just be like the baseline. They they should we should all be embodying that within our politics. and within our performances whenever we're in any queer spaces or whenever we're at university as well. Um but on top of that I think consent yeah definitely links in, into representation as well. Uh I think one of the things which I find really interesting is my personal experiences as a queer femme of color in Berlin and how that also relates to the city being conceptualized as this sort of like free open liberal tolerant place and kind of like a haven but like the question is for whom is it actually a haven you know berlin is a mecca of sorts for gay white men for cis men and for everyone else you feel very marginalized and very isolated in that community you know you go to a space like burghain for example which is seen again as this like haven but the toilets are literally this really confrontational aggressive space where you have groups of cis white men who go into toilets to take drugs together and you have gender queer folk trans folk you know women who all kind of are in that space who just want to use a cubicle who want privacy who aren't able to to do that who have to queue for 2 hours literally because someone's taking a bumper speed so i think in that sense like consent applies more in accessibility as well and i think you know there's such a fetishistic narrative in terms of race which is also underlying uh, berlin as well and comparing that to london we have so many beautiful events which are happening in london our friends do this incredible event called resistance um which is predominantly black women centering themselves in music and also you know there's places like pussy palace and there's i mean pussy palace is huge now but like our friend as well is doing a night this evening called night dykes which is centering queer women and i think like these are spaces which embody consensual politics which embody representation which embody accessibility but in berlin it's it's actually very rare before you go to a party to see a release of like a consent form or something which shows you know don't touch people without asking and things like that you still don't have that and they use this whole hedonistic like low key no photos let's all you know go have sex in the toilets as an excuse to not make spaces more accessible and that's a problem yeah when i think of consent uh, in especially in relation to this idea of queerness or like, queer liberation i think two things two things come to mind and the first is um as as you said i think that queer people have always had like a kind of very fraught relationship with consent especially in public space um public spaces who tend to be predominantly kind of heterosexual mm-hmm. uh gendered uh, male and white and queer people have always had like a very awkward and often quite violent relationship with that um and to the extent that i kind of understand consent like the underlying sort of a uh, form essence of consent in some ways is like having ownership over your own body and over your own space um clearly queer people have had like an in, like a problematic relationship with consent in heterosexual white um spaces for a long time um but also relating to this idea of like ha- consent as ownership over your body i think it relates to 
sort of what our event yesterday, what we were discussing and the history of ACT UP. And uh, one of the things that kind of really resonated with me with this idea of with the AIDS and HIV crisis, what we saw was a bunch of queer people organizing literally was a struggle over consent, over ownership of their own bodies, over ownership of um, their own means of substance and healthcare. And one of the things that was really fascinating was that they were kind of arguing for sort of patient-led uh, healthcare, for having patients actually, science science and like the medical establishment serve patients and having like patient representation on these committees and stuff. And that was like a struggle over, I, I read it as a struggle uh, over consent. And it kind of relates to today in terms of like what we're seeing with the privatization of the NHS and how that kind of, sort of strips ownership over people's bodies as well. So, yeah, so I think consent. So, I I mean, I think relating again to what you were saying, on the one hand, we've got this like really kind of LGBT friendly narratives, both in Berlin, I would argue, but also in London, uh, in Europe as well. Um, of you know of tolerance and this very like neoliberal or liberal kind of narrative of progress and inclusion etc which which gives us the idea that you know queer people are now liberated and they can yeah. exist in public and we have representation all that kind of stuff for some queer people um, but actually in reality these questions about consent have, have never been more pressing and have yeah. never been more uh, sort of intention and, and, and important to be asking right now so yeah. I think um, as well another thing which ties into the idea of consent is how like pride parades also really delegitimize the notion of consent because uh, they create this like synthetic idea that we are all a collective that we're all together and that we're all a community and you know when you go to a pride event you realize that in some contexts you have to pay to enter those events and in some places so you know in 2015 i did an action with a couple of activists including dan who is one of the co-organizers of the four-day events we're doing at the moment where we uh, broke into Pride, um, which was, you know, there were barriers along the whole street and we broke in with a huge coffin on our back and like I was wearing all black and everyone else was as well. We, We were mourning the death of Pride. We were saying that the notion of queerness had been killed and it had been replaced with this very corporate, very commercial version of what it is to embody a sexual gender identity that kind of subverts the whole heteropatriarchal modality of existence that society is used to. And um, the way we were kind of brutalized, not only by members of EDL who were also marching, but also by police and also by like chaperones of the event, it was unbelievable to see how like we as queer entities within a space which is supposed to be celebrating our freedom and our empowerment were being oppressed. And then the year after that, BAE Systems, which is an arms manufacturer who literally supply weapons to, for example, Saudi Arabia to bomb Yemen and their planes which have been used to bomb Syria as well, was flying over Pride in London. I don't believe that that's consensual. I mean, no one says that our gender, our sexual identity should be linked to this like notion of homo-nationalism. This idea that, you know, bombing another country and creating this binary of us being the empowered, sexual gendered self and then being the like oppressed other and the like the perverse other. We didn't consent to that. People aren't aware of that. People aren't educated or informed. I mean, let's not say the word educated. Let's say the word informed. People aren't woke enough to that. And that's because we don't have the consent to even take the means of like knowledge into our own hands. We're just sold a lie and we're just completely exploited in that manner. And again, that ties in so much to this notion of consent, which just is past that baseline idea of consent that we're talking about and more actually about a national issue or a global issue rather than just being about the issue of like 
SOAS as a building, as a university mm -hmm. or a club, or like you know, or an individual. Yeah. Because consent le like also links to agency and our agency is taken away from us. How can we have consent if we don't have agency? Yeah, definitely. And partially links to the event which you've curated at the ICA, mm -hmm. uh, which is an exploration of queer resistance to gentrification, mm -hmm. commercialization and appropriation. Yeah. So can you tell us more about the process of creating this event and also about creating an event that replicates the values it's exploring? Okay, so in I would say that the process of creating this event, like I used kind of a lot of my own social capital to get together the speakers which we had for this event. So uh, I love my co-organizers, um, but there is a tendency sometimes to kind of forget about the intersectional coalitional narratives of working class identity of of color identity and to focus predominantly just on like lgbt or queer identity so one of the motives of me kind of doing the event tomorrow was to do an event which fundamentally centers queer of color narratives because we all know that queer people of color have been at the forefront of resistance you didn't have a white cis gay man throw the first stone you didn't of course you know during the hiv act up movement there was a lot of white gay men, and Sarah was talking about this yesterday, who, who didn't have privilege, who were on, perpetually on the verge of death, whose bodies were perpetually stigmatized. But in the grand scheme of things, within 2019, queer of color resistance is fundamentally at the front. So for me, like the main impetus to create this event, which we're doing tomorrow, is to have those speakers and people who are in our community who are at the forefront of challenging that normal narrative of say XXL or GAY or heaven and things like that. Travis is not part of a collective. Travis is an individual person. Travis is an individual activist, a performer, uh, someone involved in theatre and Travis is a friend and I really appreciate the work that they do and having Travis on board obviously legitimises the, the scope of what we want to speak about in the first place so that was a given. I asked Travis and they agreed to do it and I'm really excited to have them speak. Lewis uh, is genderqueer and is actually part of the Pussy Palace team as well as being the um, co-founder of Inferno and uh, Lewis is a mother amongst like the queer community here in London like Inferno is an outstanding you know it's a techno party but it's a queer techno party it's for outcasts it's for freaks it's for people who don't feel comfortable with their aesthetic or their performance of their gender or their sexuality within the more conventionalized spaces and it, it's a space for people to kind of feel open and feel comfortable. So that was why I wanted to have Lewis on it as well. Avia is a friend of ours and Avia has been at the forefront of direct action since I met her. I mean, you know, she has been part of a, an organization which literally occupied a former women's prison and created a domestic service shelter. Like, that, that's, in, that's insane. When you think about how criminalized we are in doing direct action and to think about women of color being at the forefront of still occupying space like that it's absolutely outstanding and you know Avia alongside a couple of our other friends were also you know they stormed the red carpet of the suffragettes the the yeah the opening was, night yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah you had like a row of these women of color lying there it was all over the news like and Recently as well, Avia was with Angela Davis, who is like, let's not even talk about how iconic Angela Davis is. But like, you know, having these sort of links of direct action of activism in, in that space with Avia as well is, is great. And then the final two panelists we had, which is the Center for Transnational Development and Collaboration, that's uh, Noor Abu Asab and Nasser Adin. And both of them are queer Palestinians. And for me, Palestinian politics is at the forefront of resistance. It doesn't matter in what sort of context, whether you want to face, if you want to contextualize it within class, within gender, within post-colonialism, within sexuality, no matter what it is, Palestinian resistance should, should and will always be one of the forefront. Just like the Black Power movement will always be at the forefront because these are the biggest movements that have to challenge the most dominant structures in our society. So 
putting that together with the ICA, it was interesting. I'm not getting paid to do this event at the ICA. No money goes into my pocket. Thankfully, money goes into the pocket of my speakers. And for me, that's good enough because, you know, the work which we're doing is facilitating a space for people who have already started creating these empowering narratives to be able to attract others to come and learn and, you know, have this knowledge sharing, this information exchange. Um, I was a bit nervous because the ICA has a tendency to intellectually gentrify a lot of narratives which happened there. Um, I may actually come back to you at the end of this and tell you to not put that in if I want to do an event with them again. <laughs> I doubt they'll even hear this. But I mean, there is a tendency to obviously be quite tokenistic in that context. Yeah. And I think that was something which was a bit challenging at first, which we were thinking about, like, mm. where should we do it? We were originally going to do the event at Hackney Attic. And I was like, are we really going to do the event at a space which literally is in the centre of one of the most gentrified areas of mm. of, um, of London? So that was, I guess, like the thought process mm. behind putting that all together. And um and then I, I think you asked something else, but I can't remember what it was. Yeah, basically, I think you covered it, but it was about... So you create an event, or one creates an event because they have a message to put across, but the creation of that event should also live the message. So about, like, through the process of consulting the people who you want to speak and getting people to come to the event, yeah. it should also make sure that it's it's not creating obstacles and stuff yeah. like that. As well, because, there, again, there is this very tokenistic um, sort of, like... It's 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 there's a trend to sort of put on these events which are about empowerment, yeah. and liberation, and intersectionality yeah. and coalition. But the events are extremely inaccessible, and the events are promoted in the wrong context. And the events, uh, you know, they delegitimize themselves yeah. within the within the very structures that they're placed. And so, for example, venues are a really important thing to choose. Our reason to eventually go with the ICA is because the ICA is a place in central London which will attract a crowd, and has attracted attracted a crowd for twenty years. So at that point, we kind of put maybe to a certain level up our more radical politics to the side and said, okay, why don't we take a space which is essentially yeah. a museum and use that. But I guess one of the ways to tackle those obstacles is to, if you're doing an event about anti-gentrification, don't do it in a spot which gentrifies yeah. a community yeah. that is, you know, has a massive working class community that still don't have access to basic welfare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, put your money where your mouth is yeah. and make sure that your politics isn't just this performative thing to get funding or yeah. to get... Yeah, and also I think like in terms of like organising events like for queer people of colour, by queer people of colour and like for queer people in, in general by, you know, by queer people in the sense that, um, again, returning to this idea of LGBT friendliness and now being queer is like very sort of celebrated in popular culture and mainstream culture more generally that it's important to um, to not, yeah, to not use that in a tokenistic way. But yeah, um, and, exactly. and we see that sometimes with drag of like drag queens and very like straight spaces yeah. and like straight people consuming this type yeah. of drag as a kind of People's very voyeuristic and yeah. this like way of consuming queer culture. And I think what you've done with this event has like actively worked against that type what of... What we've done, to be honest, though, like, I mean, this is something which is contextualized within four days. And like at the end of the day, this is something... I think doing this event tomorrow at the ICA by itself without having today's event and yesterday's event and Saturday and obviously without having Sarah to legitimise the entire narrative behind it with her long career of work, it wouldn't have been possible. Mm -hmm. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, an absolute bottle an absolute bottle of vodka with the pride flag on it does not mean I'm empowered because that same bottle could literally be used to crack my head open by a homophobe who sees me in my genderqueer aesthetic on the street. Uh -huh. So I just feel like these things which are supposed to be uh, mechanisms of empowerment can simultaneously be used as like objects of oppression and yeah. control yeah. as well. And I think, yeah.
we need to challenge that. So you mentioned Sarah, who is the speaker at tonight's event. Can you um, go into more detail about who she is and her work? (laughs) I mean, Sarah is one of those, for me, she's one of those thinkers. I wouldn't even necessarily call her, an, you know, just an academic. She's not just an activist. She's not just a campaigner. She's, she's one of those people who really kind of blends uh, the, the academic and the intellectual uh, sort of exercises with like very incredibly pragmatic um, sort of political uh, activism. And I think that's one of the why her work resonates with so many people from different walks of life and why it's actually incredibly useful, not just in sort of thinking about coalition politics, but actually doing coalition politics. very accessible, which is also very good. Exactly. So she, I mean, she was one of the founders uh, of the ACT UP, as as well as being one of the sort of uh, organizers in ACT UP New York. Uh, She's also one of the co-founders of the ACT UP World History Project. Um, And she's one of the founders of Lesbian Avengers and what she's going to be talking about. I mean, what her most recent work focuses on is precisely this question of like what works, like what makes what what made ACT UP so successful. Um, And she's conducted, I think, uh, yeah, 188 interviews over the course of 20 years with former ACT UP members, um, literally asking these kinds of questions. um, And she's going to be presenting it tonight. Um, but it's kind of also about, I think, a mass- massive component of her work is kind of how do we use uh, this kind of knowledge, this type of history, this kind of intergenerational knowledge uh, within the queer community to um, to learn? What can we learn from this type of activism to kind of harness uh, power in the present, to change, to, to, to affect social change in the present? And I think that's a, a theme that is like a running theme also of what Dan Glass's work does with Creators of London. Um, I mean, mostly he, yeah, it's this idea of like harnessing history uh, to affect change in the present. Um, and he does that through various tours um, and sort of like excavating literally um, queer history, you know, from archival, you know, all sorts of uh, material to harness change in the present. And I think that's one of the massive uh, components of also Sarah's work. I just want to also very quickly, it's a short passage from uh, Sarah Shulman's The Gentrification of the Mind, Witness to a Lost Imagination, which is also the context and the pretense of the events we're doing here. So she says, the process of re- like talking about neighborhoods, she says, the process of replacement was so mechanical, I could literally sit on my stoop and watch it unfurl. The replaced the replacement tenants had a culture of real privilege that they carried with them. I know that's a word that is bandied about and can be applied to easily in many arenas. But what I mean in the case of the gentrifiers is that they were privileged in that they did not have to be aware of their power or the ways in which it was constructed. They instead saw their dominance as simultaneously non-existent and as the natural deserving order. This is the essence of supremacy ideology, the self-deceived pretense that one's power is acquired by being deserved and has no machinery of enforcement. And then the privileged who the entire society is constructed to propel, unlearn that those earlier communities ever existed. They replaced the history and experience of their neighborhoods, former residents with a distorted sense of themselves as timeless. This is what we see within the case of, I don't know, I mean, Hackney, Tottenham in Berlin, in Kreuzberg and Neukölln as well. You know, I mean, I don't live in Neukölln or Kreuzberg anymore. I lived there last year. Now I live in Veding, which is still like a two-thirds minority community. The Turkish-speaking community is the largest community there, and I speak Turkish fluently. It's part of my identity. And uh, when I'm around Kreuzberg and Neukölln, it's so insane to see the like racial divide and the difference between the gentrifiers who hop from bar to bar and the, the residents, the gastarbeiters, or the, the descendants of gastarbeiters who are guest workers who still to this day struggle to have citizenship or struggle to even maintain 
having citizenship in the face of not being able to have dual citizenship, walking down the same street as someone who has come from, say, Paris or London. And I think that this whole cultural erasure is something that is so pertinent, not only within London, but more globally as well, and also contextually within our work within Europe. Mm. And I think, you know, Sarah really manages to kind of drive that point with the work and what she's talking about within the context of New York. And that's another reason mm. why we're bringing her here yeah. to make it clear to us here in London. Uh, what would you say are the obstacles that queer people are facing in maintaining and achieving sexual health and well-being? I mean, uh, I think I mean going back to gentrification, I know we've talked about it a lot, but I think, you know, this whole, this whole idea of inclusion that we've made progress, the, you know, this, this idea of pride, none of that makes any sense or can actually make any real difference really as long as we don't tackle things like gentrification, things like the privatization of the NHS and healthcare more broadly uh, across the, the, the world in the sense of these are kind of structural structural issues which sort of, yeah, void any other sort of tokenistic um, form of inclusion of any meaning and um, and, and strip consent over, uh, from, from queer people's, uh, yeah, sense of agency and ownership over their own spaces, over ownership over their own bodies. Um, and so I think that's, that's what we need to be incredibly mindful of. Mm. Um, yeah. I think uh, one of the most important things as a queer community we need to focus on is uh, drawing attention to and showing solidarity with the violence that is faced by trans women. Yes. Because trans women are at the forefront of our community for resistance and for change. They are the ones who challenge the social norms in which we are socialized into being. They challenge the gender binary which is constructed in so many different contexts to oppress us and to restrict us. And trans women are the, pe are the people who face the most violence mm -hmm. within our community. And I think that, you know, there needs to be this destigmatization of trans women's sexuality as well. There needs to be a detokenization. There needs to be actual representation. I mean, it took Monroe Bergdorf literally saying that all white people are inherently racist for her career to be kickstarted and for her to become one of the fundamental speakers within like not only the UK now, but within like the English speaking world. Mm -hmm. It's insane that a person has to go through a level of structural, economic, physical, sexual violence in order for their narrative to be legitimized. Mm -hmm. And it's so infuriating because trans women are the people within our, and trans women of color are the people in our community who go through that violence mm -hmm. more than anyone yeah. else. Yeah. And it seems we've now gotten into this sort of habit of only legitimizing trans women's narratives when they've experienced violence. Mm -hmm. And we need to start as a community giving space for trans women to be able to talk without them having to necessarily react, but rather act, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. I think that's a really important thing yes. to focus on. Okay, great. So finally, is there any organisations who'd worked you'd like to acknowledge? Resources you would like to share or signpost? I mean, I can. I could. This could go on for a very, very long time. Um, but I think over the last three years now, I think I've learned so much um, from uh, this organization called the Friends of the Joiners Arms. Um, I've been involved with them and this organization was formed in 2015 to oppose the closure. Well, to, you know, after the closure of uh, an iconic and incredibly important uh, LGBT space uh, called the Joiners Arms on Hackney Road. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it was closed to make space for like luxury flats and like flexible office space and, and yeah, closed by property developers. And I've learned so much you know over the past three years I'd like to acknowledge like the work that this group of people have been doing to oppose gentrification to tie like the closure of one pub to like a bigger kind of struggle about reclaiming queer spaces about 
reclaiming sort of spaces in general. Um, and yeah, I think their work is amazing and sort of is also in some ways the embodiment of like coalitional politics in the 21st century. Yeah, there's two for me. One of them is Berlin Against Pinkwashing, which is a collective that I'm part of. We did an action last summer during Christopher Street Day, which is the Berlin version of Pride, where we essentially, some of us Palestinians, some of us not, we invaded the space of the Israeli float and the British float at Pride, put ourselves in harm's way in a country where any form of Palestinian activism is seen as anti-Semitic, is seen as anti-national, is seen as terrorism. And um, I think that a lot of the people in that in that group are also from Jewish Antifa, Jewish Voices for Peace as well. And they demonstrate really good accompliceship rather than allyship. You know, that it's not performative. They're actually by our sides. They actually protect us and they actually, uh, you know, try and fight this homo-national rhetoric of like Israel and Israel pinkwashing the world and all of that. And yeah, on top of that, um, I am doing a festival with Bikish, which is an anti-cafe and a venue space in Berlin, which is queer run by two incredible people, Luna Sabur and Nina Martin. Both of them are German. Luna is of Moroccan descent. Uh, Nina is born and raised in Berlin. And both of them run this amazing space. And we're doing a festival together called Nuan Festival, which is the first in Germany focusing on queer Muslim identity. It coincides with Queer History Month in Berlin and also with the holy month of Ramadan this year. And we have some outstanding speakers who are at the forefront of Berlin's queer community and queer of color community coming to do events for free. And all of the money which we raise from that will be going to Masjid Al-Rabia, which is a Chicago-based um, charity who provides spiritual and advocative representation to incarcerated trans and queer Muslims in the prison industrial complex. So everything that we're doing in that sense is all for a good cause and it's all to help our siblings who are behind jail around the world. Thank you so much. Yeah.